great to see you. Hope you had a wonderful day today. The weather is certainly amenable to that. So hope you had hope you had good use of the day and looking forward to looks like a string of days just like this one. This is one of three classes that are ongoing for adults. There is a class over in the annex taught by Jonathan Farr. He's dealing with modern moral issues. This class is dealing with the book of John, and tonight we'll be especially studying, Lord willing, two stories, two descriptions of signs found in John chapter 6. And the other class is actually taking place in the little chapel. It's a ladies' class, so if you want to move to one of those other classes, that is fine. Peace. I'm not taking notes on who abandons me, but... uh, just give you the heads up about those opportunities. Have some sick people that we want to continue remembering in our prayers. Irene Baker and John Dryden are both in final stages of cancer. Please pray for their comfort and for their caregivers. Sandy Bonham is also very seriously ill with cancer, and she's undergoing some treatments. Martha Eaton has some serious problems with her foot and is waiting for news probably in the next week or two about what to do further. Austin Wentz is the grandson of John Wilde Gardner. He's been sick and still undergoing treatments. Uh, Joan Mormon is recovering from shoulder problems. She's also down with a stomach virus right now, so remember her. Uh, Her sister Norma is also sick, and we want to keep her in our prayers. Verlin Davis has Alzheimer's, so remember her and her caregivers. Brian Rowland is doing better with his foot. Talked to him yesterday and hoping that he's on the road to recovery. Remember Sue Mason's brother, Ricky. He had some surgery for blood clots in his lungs. And Jacqueline Jumper, Cameron's here, but we want to keep her in our prayers along with their new baby. Eddie Smith is Keith Freeze's father-in-law. He broke his hip a couple of weeks ago. He's recovering from surgery. Quentin Wigginton was hospitalized this week. He has had several falls. They detected a brain bleed. He was taken to Tupelo. So pray that all that resolves itself. Philip Coates is recovering from knee surgery. Uh, He's had some little complications from it. Probably not too serious, but uh, still complications. So remember him as he's recovering. And, of course, uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, Certainly upsetting about those events, but we want to pray that there's a quick resolution to those strifes. Anybody else you'd like to add to our list? Ray is sick. All right. Okay. Well, hate to, hate to hear that. It adds insult to injury, doesn't it? You go in for one problem and end up with another. Well, we're going to be praying for these. We're going to sing a song before uh, we get started and, and have a prayer, and then we'll begin our Bible study together. Six, seven, eight. More about Jesus. Guess what we'll be learning tonight? Yes, more about Jesus. So that works out good, doesn't it?
Father in heaven, thank you so much for a beautiful day today. Thank you for our good health and strength. I'm sure there's some folks here tonight that are here and want to be here, but aren't feeling very well. So I'm praying, Lord, that you'll bless them according to the desire of their heart to be here. You'll just free them from these inconveniences. But in the larger part, we're just grateful that we have the freedom to be able to assemble together. But Lord, we know of all these folks who have setbacks and we're praying your blessings on them. For Irene Baker and John Dryden as they battle cancer and bless, bless their families as they offer support and enjoy uh, quality time with them. We pray for Sandy Bonham that she'll receive treatments that, that's going to turn around her situation and make her stronger and better. We pray for Martha Eaton and Joan Mormon and for their sister Norma, all these sisters dealing with health issues, we pray quick resolutions to some of these things. Pray that they'll get better. Bless Austin Wentz and his treatments, and we're thankful that his cancer has been arrested to a good degree. Bless Verlin Davis and those who tend to her. Be with Brian Rowland as he's once again nursing a, a foot with problems and we just pray he's on the road to recovery. Bless Sue Mason's brother, Ricky Ross. And we pray he'll have a full recovery and be with her son, Ray, who's sick with a virus. We pray for Jacqueline Jumper and her new baby. We pray that they'll both uh, do well and they can be with us soon. We pray for Eddie Smith as he's recovering from his surgery. And we pray a full recovery. Bless Quitman, Lord, as he's been hospitalized. We pray his treatment's successful. And whatever's calling, causing his falls, we pray that can be um, remedied. Please bless Philip Coates, who's just had several, several surgeries of late. And we pray that he's doing well, getting better, and that he can be back with us real soon. We pray for Larry Wallace, who has developed these problems with his kidney simply as a result of the medication he's been taking. We pray that maybe the adjustment to his regimen will help, but we just pray full function for his kidneys again and uh, certainly for the infection that he's dealt with to be taken care of. We also pray, Father, for world events, for what's going on in the Ukraine. We pray, Father, for peace and for brothers and sisters that are under assault. We pray, if it's your will, that they'll be protected. And uh, despite all that, pray that you'll give them the strength, the courage, the wherewithal, even in those dark times, to be able to share their faith. And we're thankful for our own faith that preserves and strengthens us. And I pray through our study together that it'll just get stronger, that you'll bless us with insight into the Word to the extent that what we read there will become enlivened in us and that the things we read aren't, aren't just literary stories, not just interesting stories, but that we can envision them in our mind as though we were standing there watching it and that it'll make the impact on us that it made on those who were true eyewitnesses of those events. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do 
to make our belief in you so easy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to be in John chapter 6. Now, we've already looked at several of the signs that were handpicked by God, written down through the pen of John, preserved for us all these many years. All the things that Jesus did, there were not enough volumes. The earth couldn't even hold the number of volumes that could be written that would have reflected all that he did. But we do have those that were handpicked that are designed to develop belief in us. We started in John chapter 2, the first 11 verses, and we learned about what? Turning the water into wine. And boy, when we walked away from that, we were like those initial handful of disciples. We just, man, we believe in Jesus just by reading that. And then we went to chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, and we read about what? Healing of the nobleman's son, which was a display of Jesus' power over distance because that occurred over a distance of about how far? About 20 miles from Capernaum to Cana. So again, we walked away from that, reading it, and we're like, yes! Just like those folks who were impressed with those events, so too we, and we walked away with a great faith in Jesus. And then in chapter 5, the first 18 verses, a rather lengthy description, but we also there read about another healing, and what healing was that? The healing of the man with the infirmity, which we said was Jesus' demonstration of power over time, because that guy had been sick for how long? 38 years. Hard to imagine. That's, that's a long time. In fact, we compare that to the time that existed between when Israel was out there in the wilderness from Kadesh Barnea. It took them 38 years to get on to Zezred. I mean, that's a long time. So tonight, in chapter 6, we want to look at, at two more signs that are designed to develop belief in us. The first is the most famous of the miracles of Jesus. It's Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, we're going to be reading together from the scriptures, so I encourage you to get your own Bible out. Now, you can read along with me. I'm going to be going off this screen here. You can do that if you want to. But I want you, if you, you can, at least opening your Bible up to these passages, because here's what I find is true for me. When I'm using my Bible, I see it on the page. It becomes more familiar to my brain. I think that's going to be true for you. The more you use your Bible, the more familiar with the Scripture you'll be. So at least have your Bible open there to John chapter 6. And if you are of a mind to jot down notes, you could put those notes right down there, on your Bible page if you wanted to, or if you're like my wife, you have a notebook. She has a note for every lesson I've ever taught that she's heard. She just jots down everything. So maybe you can do that too, and then you can reference it later. Not just tomorrow or next week. You'll have it, you know. You can catalog that and read it again later. Now, this chapter is going to divide itself up with especially these two signs that we're going to look at tonight. So this first one, which I said is the most famous, is going to go from verse 1 all the way down through verse 15. That's going to be Jesus feeding the 5,000. I mentioned that that is the most famous simply because of this. There are two miracles that are recorded in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of those is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That makes sense, doesn't it? (laughs) Of course. I mean, that's the thing. So you would expect that to be there. But the one that all of the gospel writers include that was, was in their mind so powerful and so impressive that it could not be missed is this one, the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, so let's see what we've got in store. It says, after these things, well, stop right there. (laughs) Okay, so I I don't think I've shared this with you yet, but 
I just want you to be kind of aware. John, John's gospel was written practically two or three generations after Matthew, Mark, and Luke came out. So when you read the book of John, you're reading something that seems to be very different from the other books. Not, not different in terms of substance, not even really different in terms of what you learn about the events themselves, although there would oftentimes be more details given in John. But what John does is John picks up, it seems like, with some themes that maybe there were questions about or some areas that maybe people had questions about and they'd never really heard an explanation or a story about. So Jesus famously spent a lot of time in the region of Galilee, right? In fact, already we've been with Jesus in Cana of Galilee. He was in there because he kind of avoided his own native territory of Nazareth. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal a lot with Jesus' Galilean ministry. In fact, just let's use Matthew because typically people fall back on Matthew since it's so large as kind of the base From Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, all the way through chapter 14, verse 12, you have a depiction of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Well, that's a pretty good coverage, don't you think? So this, I think, after these things, is actually picking up after the events of Matthew chapter 14 and verse 12 on. So we're really, from this point on, looking at Jesus working in Judea. So after these things, is kind of, I mean, if you want to jot this down, you could put your little bar or something, just to kind of make a break. I'm thinking that the last statement of chapter 5, and now this beginning point in chapter 6, there's probably a year that has passed. You've got events like, for instance, the limited commission taking place. You've got things like the Sermon on the Mount being preached. You've got, well, here's a big one. Jesus healing the widow's son in name. Now, that's interesting because you would think Jesus raising somebody from the dead, that would have been one of these. What I'm telling you is this right here is such a significant event that even though all that other stuff had transpired and was on the record, John, inspired by God himself, says, that was great, but let me tell you about this. So after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. I will tell you, the Sea of Galilee, the way they traversed it, is about an eight-mile journey. Now, it says he went over it. I don't know, probably indicating that he went over in a boat because that's going to be a significant um, mode of transportation here in our second section. But if if that's how he did it, he was on a boat that traveled up about an eight-mile course. A great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Okay, stop right there. The great multitude. Who makes up the multitude? Well, I'm thinking throngs of people, first of all, right? Just people. Because when he goes places, he does what? He does the signs, he does the miracles, he preaches, he's entertaining. You know, they're going to see what's going to happen next. So, you know, he's famous. So you've got a lot of just hangers on, people that just want to be a part of something that is great. You also had in the mix of that, and this is often where the controversy comes flowing out usually, you have some Jewish religious I'm going to call it the Jewish religious establishment, but Jewish religious leaders like, well, who would be one of the most famous of those groups? Pardon? Okay, Caiaphas as as part of the ruling class of that part of the, you know, the Sadducees, but typically Pharisees, right? Pharisees are going around all the time. 
And uh, a part of that class was a group that usually challenged Jesus. That would be the lawyers or the scribes, the people that really could. Here's the thing. Maybe the high priest, not so much. Or those, those older guys that just were really about, you know, money changing. <laughs> a part of the ruling class within the religion. But when you met up with the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, those were people who, at least in their own mind, could go toe-to-toe with Jesus scripturally, right? They could quote something to Jesus and see what he had to say back. And so those guys were not afraid to tangle with Jesus simply because they thought they had the high ground. Well, what did they find out? <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> not, not so much, right? They were more in tune with their own traditions than actually the Word of God itself. Okay, there's, there's two groups. There's another group that I would call, and this is not just the general mass of people. These are people that are following Jesus because they're really interested. I'd call those generally disciples or learners. That's another way to translate the word. A learner, somebody who, and it just depends. You know, if you've been with Jesus a lot, seen the miracles, you've seen some of these that we've already talked about. You're already impressed with Jesus. Maybe you are truly a believer, but there were varying degrees of faith, varying degrees of understanding. And so these are people hearing the, you know, the, the, the teachings of Jesus. They're hearing his parables. They're being confounded. They're not quite sure. And then later, and we'll see this later, Jesus gets to talking about his flesh and his blood and what it takes to be in the kingdom of God and They're so confused, many of them fall off. And then the last group that we would kind of lump in there would be the 12. Now, what's the purpose of the 12? They are kind of all the things we've talked about so far, right? They fall around, they see everything. Uh, They are learners. They're hearing the teachings, they're seeing the miracles. But the purpose ultimately of them sticking with Jesus to the very end was that they could ultimately be what for Jesus? They're going to be witnesses. They're going to give eyewitness testimony of what it is that they experience once Jesus is gone. And so that group of people is the one that Jesus wants most to impress with the things that are going on, to draw them in. So it's great for the multitudes to learn, but absolutely necessary for the development and success of the kingdom is going to be the development and success of these 12. So they've all got to be on, on board. Jesus went up on the mountain. Which mountain is this, you reckon? If you know, tell me, because I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, some scholars say this could be the Golan Heights. Okay, peace, whatever. It would be, you know, I guess it would be kind of romantic to say that he was on Mount Sinai, but I, I don't think so. So he goes up on a mountain. And by the way, did Jesus do that a lot? He did. Why did he do that? Why did he go up on a mountain? Okay, sometimes it's to get alone. And sometimes, like on the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes being on a mount allows you what? Okay, it's a, it's a peace, but if the multitudes are pressing you... You use that as kind of an amphitheater and means by which you can communicate to people, right? Okay. Okay, so Jesus goes up. uh, He sat there with the disciples. Beautiful. Now, the Passover. Remember that we said there were how many of these? And by the way, this is another one. There were at least four of them, which would make up Jesus's three and a half year ministry, right? So this is, this is one of them. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was near. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Who will read John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, very quickly? John chapter 2. Verses 24 and 25. Put your thinking caps on because I'm about to engage you intellectually. You're going to share something. Who has that? Yes. Okay. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. 
Okay, why did Jesus need people to tell him about everybody else? Nothing. Why not? He already knows. What does Jesus know about people? Everything. What, by the way, just for fun, what's he know about you? Everything. Okay, now, let's get into this. What does he know about Philip? <laughs> okay, it stands to reason, right? You don't have to tell. And by the way, just, just so we're, we're clear on this, Philip is one of the apostles. So where's Philip been this whole time? He's been right there with Jesus. He was there from the beginning of the disciples of Jesus to become the apostles, right? He's one of the first, okay? So Jesus knows Philip. But look at this. Jesus asked Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? He did it to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Why is he testing Philip? What does he want to know from Philip? What? Okay, if he's a believer. To see if he... Now see, what I'm hearing is, Jesus is asking this to discover something. I want to know if he has... Does Jesus not know that? John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. What did that say again? Adam? He what? He knew. He knew. You don't have to tell me, Jesus says. I know. How could Jesus know? He's the, he's the son of... Is he the son of God? He is the son of God. Does Jesus know what Philip thinks right here? Jesus absolutely knows what, G, what Philip thinks. Jesus isn't asking to test him for his sake. Who's he testing him for? He's testing him for, I believe it is for Philip's sake. And here's why I say that. Okay, you study the scriptures, you know what is right and wrong. Uh, you, you imagine in your mind how you might act in circumstances, even if you've never actually been in one of those circumstances. For instance, I, I don't know, you, you may have read that uh, recently, like Mark Posey, the, the preacher, was over there in the Ukraine. And he was, uh, you know, doing his school or whatever, and then war breaks out and he makes his, his way over here. How would you have reacted in that situation? Now, the reason I ask that is because we can sit over here having never been in that situation and say what I would do. But how do you know what you would really do? The only way you'd know what, how you would really react in some circumstances is to actually go through the circumstance, right? I have in my mind how I think I would act under given circumstances but it may be that when I actually am in it, I act totally different from the way I had ever intended. For instance, I don't know what you do when the Lord's Supper is passed around, but for me, when, when I partake of that unleavened bread and I drink of the fruit of the vine, I imagine what it would have been like to be at the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, here's what I would like to think. I often, when I read the story about Jesus and how he was rejected, even by this group, Philip is one of them, having been left by all of them. You know, the only one that's left with him is the father. And ultimately, what does the father do? He also walks away. And so there's Jesus. I, I, I a million times in my mind have thought, had I been there, I would have stood with Jesus. That's exactly what Peter said. And what did Peter do? <laughs> not only did he not stay, he denied him three times. And it's like, I think I know myself. I think I know how I would react. But unless I am, and here's what God does for us a lot. Not because he needs to know what we are, but because we need to know what we are. He does this. He T-E-S-T-S. -S. 
He tests us. What was Jesus doing here? Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Did Jesus really want to know the answer to that question? No, but he did want to know what Philip would think about his own answer regarding that. Where's Philip's head? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. 200 denarii. A denarii is not a part of our coinage, (laughs) so that's kind of foreign, but uh, typically one denarii was what you got paid for a day's wage. 200 days wages would not be enough that we could buy bread because, Lord, I'm looking at this mass of people and we're going to need what? We're going to need a lot of bread. Here's something that I learned about Philip that I'm going to guess Philip learned about himself ultimately as this story unfolds, and that is that Philip, at least on this occasion, was a pessimist. We don't have enough. In fact, we don't have anything. And so what? That's it. All hope's lost. We don't have enough. So I guess that's it. That's what he said. It's not sufficient. But look at verse 8. So Philip, pessimist. We don't have enough. One of the disciples, Andrew... Simon Peter's brother said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Optimist. Don't tell me there's nothing we can do. I'll look around and find something we can do. Here's what I found. And what did he find? Enough for 5,000? No? Is that enough, not enough for 5,000? I say no. In fact, he wasn't saying that we could do it. He's just like, you know, I found this. Here's something. What Philip offer? Nothing but excuses. We don't have enough money. It's going to take a lot of money. What did Andrew offer? Maybe not know how this is going to work, but... Here is some hope. I may not be able to feed everybody, but I could do what, Lord? I could feed somebody. I found something. Here's a little something to help. Well, Jesus said, make people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down. In number, about 5,000. Okay, we say that Jesus feeds the 5,000. And uh, technically that's true because that text says that there were 5,000 men. But as you've seen other multitudes that followed Jesus around, uh, what also accompanied men? Uh, women and children. And, you know, if you're, if you're into estimating, you know, you're talking plus or minus 20,000 people. You're going to feed 20,000 people with five fish and, or five barley loaves and two fish? You don't want to say no because you know what the story is. I'm just, you put yourself in the story. We're here. I found this. I'm not saying it's nothing. It is something. But what is that among so many people? What is it that we could do? Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Okay, stop right there. I'm looking at some words here. Okay, so... They had, in verse 11, as much as they wanted, which means what? Have you ever been to one of those meals where people went through the first time and then somebody came back out and said, hey, we got plenty, folks. If anybody wants to go through the second time, you ever been to one of those? I know you have because I've been to one of those here, right? 
We always have way, way more than enough. Okay, so how did people eat on this occasion? Hey, don't worry, we've got plenty. All were, what? They had as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, what does that mean, if you're filled? You're satisfied, you've been satiated. So you go gather the fragments. Wait, what? Fragments. Now we start off with basically, and and I don't, you know, they didn't have paper sacks. But I've heard it described like, He's, he's referencing a, a sack lunch, you know, of the boy. It's got, got a little bit of bread and some fish in it. Okay, so a sack lunch turns into where they were able to take the leftovers and fill 12 baskets. Why 12 baskets? I mean, I don't know, maybe it just happened to have 12 baskets, but we've got 12 apostles, disciples, who are going to be hungry later, right? So, okay, we start off with, you know what? I'm going to, I, I can't envision taking care of the whole thing, but Lord, I will do my part. I will do my part. I have found this. Seems like it would be insufficient, but Lord, I've done this. What did the Lord do with the very least that a disciple could present him? He multiplied it so that not only were the people satisfied, not only then were they satiated so that they were filled, but they had what? They had way more leftovers than they started with to begin. True? What can Jesus do with the very little that you offer Him? Multiply it. You say the problem is big, but all I have is this. If you'll commit just the little bit of this, what can God do with that? You know, we talk that way a lot. Especially when we read a story like that. But is that practically true? Do you really trust Jesus for that? You have a big obstacle, but you only have a little that you think you're going to deal with it. You know what most people do? They slip into depression. They begin to talk about how they're not worthy or they're not doing enough. If you've got the little bit and you'll commit it to the Lord in faith like this, what will God do? Is there anything that God can't do? Yeah, Marilyn, but, but here's what I'm going to do without referencing the second story to begin with. I'm going to think, now, you know, if I had been there and seen that, I would think there is nothing Jesus cannot do. There isn't anything beyond His ability. Amen? Isn't that right? In fact, it was so powerful in that setting. Look at verse 14. Those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. That's pretty significant when you compare that to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, because the one who in that passage endorsed this prophet was none other than whom? That starts with an M and ends with an S. And has a O-C in it. (laughs) Moses, right? Moses said, there's a prophet coming. He's going to be greater than me. Who do these people say you must be? You must be that prophet because we have seen an astounding display of the power of God. Wow. So I'm just going to think positively, man, if I saw that, that would nail it down. Seeing such a... I mean, did you see that, folks? He took this little bit and he turned it out so that everybody had all they could eat and then he had this super abundance. Wow! Unbelievable. But then comes, to me, I mean, if I were ranking miracles, usually when we say that somebody isn't Jesus or doesn't have the power of God, we say something like, well, you know, bring that bucket of water over here and let them stick their hand in it. Let's see if it leaves an imprint. 
the idea of Jesus walking on the water. Wow, because that is power over natural law of all things, right? That would be an undisputed display of the power of God, seems to me. Now, that's going to pick up at verse 16, just immediately on the heels of this event, and go through verse 21. Now, when evening came, same day, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Uh, kind, of, kind of the rest of the story, uh, you can go back to, and, and also paralleled is chapter uh, 14 in Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, and Mark chapter 6 and verse 45. Uh, the reason that they're having to get in these boats, this kind of makes it looks lo- look like, well, you know, it's nice, they just kind of sauntered over there and got in a boat. Actually, the crowd was so large, Jesus had to disperse them. So I'm, I kind of want to set this up. Eventually, there's a terrible storm. Question, did Jesus know there was going to be a storm? Sure he did, absolutely. So, okay, Jesus has these guys get in a boat that's going to be out in the sea when a storm comes up. Would Jesus deliberately put his disciples in a life-threatening situation? <laughs> Jim, Jim, thank you for saying sure, because he knows what's going to happen. But here's what I want to just pose for you. And that is, uh, no. But it's not like you think. The life-threatening situation in Jesus' mind is not them getting in the boat and going out in the sea and weathering a storm because he's got what? He's got that. He's got the power. That is not a threat. A threat to the disciples was actually doing what? Staying where they were, right? With that crowd and those people pressing. Remember how many times Jesus had to secretly, kind of mysteriously just pass through the crowds because they were pressing. Jesus actually, you think about the, the, the better of two evils. <laughs> Jesus is like, you guys get in that boat. That's going to be safer for you, okay? So they got into the boat. They went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. What's Jesus doing staying back? Probably holding back the crowd or maybe moving them to another area so that gives them some room. Just kind of logistical. It was already dark. The sea arose because of a great wind. It was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, where does that put them, given that I told you a few moments ago, a few minutes ago, how far it is across that lake? It's eight miles across, so where are they right now? They're, they're right dead in the middle of that lake, the, the sea, the Sea of Galilee. So they had rowed about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat. Immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Kind of a, a secondary miracle. What happened as soon as things started moving? Boom, it went to where it was supposed to go. I want you to think, we'll, we'll hit this again next time because it's time to stop. But uh, I also want you to look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22, uh, 20, yeah, 28 to 33. Uh, Matthew 14, 28 to 33. That gives us... Another depiction of the events that take place here. I want you next time to tell me why it is that we have this particular story with no mention of Peter and his walking on the water or any of the several other miracles that actually took place. Ponder why it is that we have this in its simplified form as being one of the miracles God wants you to know about. All right, it's time to stop. Thank you for your attention.
Good evening. It's time for us to go ahead and get started, if we could, please. We want to begin by expressing our appreciation to each of you for the fact that you're here tonight. We are honored that you're present, and we are especially uh, honored to have those who may be visiting with us tonight. As far as some updates uh, and announcements, I have a card I want to read to begin with tonight. It says, To my wonderful church family, I appreciate the many prayers for my mother over the past few years. They have meant so much to her. She loved to worship online with us, and she really enjoyed and was very encouraged by singing praises to God with us. She always told me she thought Ken was passionate in his preaching. I also want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your prayers and cards uh, that kept me comforted and the peace that God gave me. I love you all so much, and that's signed Bridget Williams. And so we want to remember that family in our prayers. I hope if you did not pick up a bulletin, you will. It's got a lot of good information in it, and uh, you'll find an update there on our sick. And I encourage you to take that and do what you can to encourage those who need encouragement. I do want to mention that Salt Team, Salt Team 2 is planning a soup and chili supper in the annex this coming Sunday night following the evening service. Bring chili and soup, sandwiches, or dessert for the meal. And it says all SALT Team 2 members are invited. That's all the announcements that I have tonight for our devotional. Uh, Brother Ken's going to be leading our singing, and Brother Chris Beard will lead our closing prayer. Please go ahead and mark number 935. 935. This will be our song of invitation. After you've marked that, please turn to 853. 853. When we all get to heaven. Won't that be a great day? Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, he'll be there as a When we all get to that we've been seeing unfold in Ukraine is certainly a situation that has captured our minds and our attention. You probably would have to go as far back to maybe World War II to find something to compare it to. You think about social media and how it's brought this violence and this brutality right into our own homes. Can you imagine if social media had existed like in World War II? Can you imagine if social media had existed on D-Day uh, all those many, many years ago? You know, you have a completely uncalled for and brutal invasion by a great military power, Russia, toward a peaceful and democratic nation, Ukraine. You know, the Ukrainian people have become well-known to Americans because of social media as well as because of the many mission efforts that have taken place to the Lord's Church over the last 30 or so years. 
But to turn on the television to to witness the tremendous destruction, the loss of life, it's just horrible to even contemplate. It broke my heart to see a six-year-old girl lose her life, to watch as doctors and others tried to save her life, but unsuccessfully. These kinds of things we see today because of our technology and because of our social media. But you know, there's some things that I thought about, and this could be an entire sermon. There are some lessons that, you know, I've considered when I've watched this unfold before my eyes. First of all, and I'm so thankful that this is true, this world is not our home, is it? Aren't you thankful we don't belong here? You know, evil is all around us. Destruction may take place. Disease may ravage our bodies. But this world is not our home. We're going to a better place. We're pilgrims and strangers. Another thing that I thought about that was made clear through all this is that evil is real. And evil is going to continue to exist until the Lord one day comes and puts an end to it all. We're going to have to coexist with evil, and we do that by being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it means death. I think another thing that what I see in Ukraine makes me think about is the fact that material things are temporary. To me, one of the most profound passages in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, where Paul makes the statement that the things which are seen, and that's talking about our five senses, the things that we can feel and see and hear and touch and smell and taste, all these things that we see every day, things that you can look round about and see now with your own eyes, everything that you visualize is temporary. Even this body that you have will one day be no more. But Paul goes on to say the things that are not seen are eternal. That's hard for us as human beings today to put more focus on things that are unseen rather than those things that are seen. And so we have to discipline ourselves and, and focus our attention on the fact that what matters is those things that are spiritual in nature and not physical in nature. Then I want to close with this one, and of course, I'm sure we can identify many others. But heaven is all that matters. If the world is still standing 100 years from tonight, somebody else will have the deed to your property. Somebody else, a whole generation of people will be maybe assembling here or living in this community and we will simply not be remembered anymore. And so eternity is all that matters. A hundred years from tonight, the only thing that is going to matter to you is not your house or your car or your friends or how well you're liked. The only thing that's going to matter in a hundred years is where you'll spend your eternity. So tonight, I hope you, do, you will think about your, your soul's salvation. If you've not obeyed the gospel, tonight would be a wonderful time to make that decision, to demonstrate your faith in Jesus by repenting of your sins, confessing his name, and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Or maybe tonight at one time you did that, but your focus has been more so on those things that are temporal rather than eternal. You may need to come tonight and ask forgiveness. You may need to come tonight acknowledging wrong in your life. And we can go to God in prayer and you can be forgiven of those sins. And so tonight, if you're subject to the invitation, we ask that you come now while we stand and sing.
You bow with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to gather together here tonight, Father, unmolested. Father, we want to pray especially for those who are worshiping you, but, Father, are worshiping you in peril of harm or death. Father, we especially want to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Father, we especially want to pray for all those over the world, for, Father, there are others in this world who are in harm's way worshiping you. Father, we pray for all those who have been mentioned as sick. Father, we pray that you know all of them, you know their needs, you know their concerns. Be with those caring for them. We pray that they may return to their most wanted places in life. Also, Father, we wish to pray for those who have lost loved ones recently. Be with them, comfort them as only you can. Father, we pray that we all understand we have all sinned and fallen short of thy glory. Father, we pray that we will live our lives in view of eternity and help spread thy word to others. Father, go with us as we go through the rest of this week. Guide us, guard us, and direct us, and keep us near thee. In Christ's name, amen.